950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Joined alongside Patrick Lilia on the other side of the production glass. Patrick, anything new with you today? How are things with you? Uh, it's been a very busy week. I'm glad to be in here today. Yeah, sounded like you were trying to get a furnace fixed at home. That's always uh, fun to try to do in November. <laughs> yeah, it won't be fixed until Friday now, so... Changing plans. Well, fortunately, it's supposed to be at least kind of warm today and tomorrow. I think tomorrow we're supposed to get up into the low 50s, so I guess you at least kind of have that going for you, but wish you the best of luck trying to get that uh, furnace taken care of. Yeah, that's never fun. Well, there is lots of news to talk about today in the Minnesota political world. Governor Tim Walls is going to be giving a press conference tonight at 6 o'clock where he is set to announce a pause on bars, restaurants, gyms, youth sports, and other social gatherings. That's, of course, one of the big political stories. The other is that two DFL state senators have announced that they are going to become independent. So lots to talk about. So we'll invite Patrick Kulikan, the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer back on the show to talk about those things and a lot else that's happening in the world of politics. Patrick, good to have you back on the show. Good to be here, Brett. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, Governor Walsh is going to be announcing uh, new restrictions that are going to be put in place. A four-week pause, it looks like, on bars, restaurants, gyms, youth sports, other social gatherings. Uh, There's going to be some other restrictions that I believe are going to be announced. So Patrick, what are you expecting we're going to hear from Governor Walls tonight? How is he going to try to sell this to Minnesotans since, well, we've already gone through a stay-at-home order, and I imagine there's going to be a vocal minority of people who won't be very happy about these uh, new executive orders that are going to be issued. So how do you think he's going to try to sell this tonight? Well, I expect him to uh, really lionize uh, the folks who deserve it, and that's the healthcare community, uh, who are under uh, increasing stress and uh, very concerned about the trends, um, and I think that uh, Minnesotans are proud of that healthcare infrastructure we have, um, and um, we don't want to put that at risk. I, I think I think generally uh, these are uh, going to be difficult weeks. But I also think that the governor probably uh, has uh, has the side, the public on his side on this, mm-hmm. um, because all you have to do is look around uh, our neighboring states and see where uh, I read yesterday where North Dakota uh, has the highest COVID death rate in the world. Um, South Dakota also is is right up there. Uh, Wisconsin's already been through um, a very difficult stretch. Uh, so I, I, I and, and Iowa as well, um, and, and obviously this happened in New York. And the South went through this. Texas and Florida and uh, Arizona went through this in the summer. Um, but I think this is much closer to home. A lot of people have ties to the Dakotas and to Wisconsin and, and Iowa here. Um, I think everybody understands that this is probably um, a reasonable step. 
Um, and, and also, it's, it's much more targeted than uh, the, the previous lockdown. They're, they're not going to affect retail, which uh, the, the evidence has shown is not risky. Uh, they're, they're not going to uh, hit uh, barbershops and salons, which have, have not had uh, outbreaks as long as people are wearing masks. Uh, so they're not doing ele- they're not uh, they're not stopping elective surgeries, uh, which which is another uh, I think very contentious uh, and fraught um, policy in the spring. Um, so um, it's it's more targeted in uh, the evidence of the of the outbreak. I mean, I think it's, I don't know about you, but I just I just know more people now who, who have had it uh, mm-hmm. just very recently. Uh, two people on my team. Um, just for instance, so um, I think people are aware of, of this very uh, crucial period that we've entered, um, and and how these rising case counts can affect uh, hospitalization, and with that, our ability to uh, our, our healthcare infrastructure's ability to survive. I'm with you on that, too. I know two people who very recently over the past week were exposed to someone with COVID. Uh, one of the people ended up with uh, the actual coronavirus themselves. So, yeah, I think it certainly is hitting home for a lot more people. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you where I'm guessing that's going to be kind of the selling point. Governor Walls is going to make for this to try to get people on board with adhering to these restrictions to at least uh, try to get our hospitals back to a point where they can at least give the patients the type of care that they need. Uh, Let's talk about reaction to what is going to be issued tonight by Governor Tim Walz. At least in the political world, how has this been received thus far? You know, there's some, uh, there is going to be, as you said, uh, a fairly small, a fairly, a very vocal minority. You know, I don't know the size, I don't, I don't know the, the, uh, the actual public opinion polling on this. But there's going to be a local minority who are going to say that he's uh, acting as a as a king or something. Um, you know, part part of the, the insofar as Republicans might like to oppose uh, this stuff well, to begin with, their constituents, their neighbors, their families are are beginning, and and the healthcare uh, their their healthcare uh, the healthcare community is is being very uh, vocal about this, and um, and so I think they understand reality, but. They also, and you may, we're gonna, maybe we're going to get to this anyway, but they they have, they have really not a leg to stand on, at least yeah. Republicans in the legislature, because uh, due to their uh, their own probably irresponsible actions, uh, they've had a COVID outbreak um, in both the Republican uh, House uh, and Senate caucuses. So um, that's really neutered their ability to attack walls on this, I think. Yeah, and let's dive right into that topic. That would, of course, be the coronavirus outbreak among Minnesota Republicans, especially in the state Senate, where this whole situation has been entirely mishandled by Paul Gazelka and the rest of that leadership in the chamber. And you wrote a really good piece about this in the Minnesota Reformer today. Minnesotareformer.com is where you can find that, where you walked through the entire timeline of what happened and overall just talked about the absolute hypocrisy of this idea of personal responsibility that Republicans were pushing earlier in this pandemic and even were still doing as recently as a few weeks ago. So before we dive into that completely, just to back up and get everyone up to speed, can you walk us through the entire timeline on how this outbreak among Minnesota Republicans occurred with COVID? 
Right. Well, we, you know, we don't know exactly, uh, you know, who was the super spreader or what have you, but what we do know is that um, they have ignored, uh, you know, public health uh, recommendations about masking in particular. And uh, two days after the election, the uh, Senate Republicans had a party that was supposed to be 100 to 150 people there uh, that went on for hours, few people wearing masks. Um, and mind you, the you know the case counts were already hitting records. Uh, that's on November fifth. Uh, the House Republicans had their own party at the Intercontinental Hotel uh, separately. So, uh, meanwhile, you know, the rest of us were probably deciding it was not a good idea, good idea to be socializing much. Uh, the, the following day. Each caucus got together to choose their leader, and uh, you kind of get different reports uh, about how much masking there was uh, in, in either uh, meeting of House Senate Republicans. But I know for the the House where they met in this little conference. It's not little, but it's it's a it's a committee room in the state, old state office building. These are sort of airless, low-ceilinged, windowless rooms. Uh, They really would be a great place for COVID to spread. Um, So then uh, on the Friday, excuse me, the Saturday after that, the House met. uh, One of the members wrote an email that we got a hold of and said, uh, you know, I probably have COVID because I have all the symptoms. I've tested negative for strep and flu. Uh, and then the confirmation came a couple days later. And the minority leader, Kurt Dowd, Republican minority leader, was did not inform the Speaker of the House. And on the Senate side, same deal. They become aware over that next weekend there uh, that they have an outbreak. They have uh, at least one member. And it was probably several. Uh, they did not inform their DSL colleagues. And meanwhile... You know, a few days later, they have a legislative, a special legislative session. And so they clearly try to conceal this from their own colleagues uh, and certainly from the public. And then it becomes public uh, because these these things do, because uh, the, the capital is everybody talks. And, and then over the course of several days, we get these shifting stories. And it turns out that the majority leader of the Senate, Paul Bezelka, is positive. Not only is he positive, but he says that he was experiencing symptoms and still got on an airplane and went to Florida for a family vacation. Um, so it was really quite quite a series of events. Uh, then there was a lot of defensiveness about how um, this is a private matter and, and we should not be... Uh, COVID shaming is what their, yeah. their phrase is. So, you know, one line that I did not use in the column is, I mean, what's the point of shaming people who don't have any? Um, because this was kind of shameless behavior on their part. And uh, finally, yesterday, we got uh, a touch of contrition, but certainly they never, uh, from Gazalka, he never said he was sorry, though. And and one other detail I think is really telling is they didn't even tell the venue, this is the Senate Republicans, they didn't tell the venue where they had this party that they'd had a COVID outbreak until a reporter asked them about it. 
I mean, it just wasn't even on their mind, apparently, that, that they might have put people at risk. Uh, so it was quite a uh, quite a display of um, what I consider to be reckless behavior, um, and and especially since their entire policy framework for mitigating the spread of, of the pandemic is personal responsibility. I mean that that's what they say the solution is. Yeah, it's personal responsibility, and lo and behold, look at what happened as you laid out in some great detail. They're walking us through exactly what happened and just how this entire situation has been completely mismanaged. And I, I'm just exhausted even trying to read through what's happening with just all of the straight-up lying we seem to be getting from Paul Gazelka's office, where it was pointed out earlier that, well, Gazelka said that he was feeling symptoms, even though his spokesperson said he wasn't feeling symptoms. Then he got in an airplane, as he said, and went to Florida, apparently with symptoms. He says he's quarantining in that state, but there's been reports that, well, no, he's not actually doing any sort of quarantining down in Florida where he's uh, uh, currently residing right now. So it's just entirely exhausting to follow. And just the amount of lying we're seeing out of this too, it's just unbelievable. I I can't even imagine what they're thinking right now. And it's just frustrating to know that, well, there's probably not going to be many political consequences that are going to come from their actions that they've taken. Well, to some extent, but I, I do think that uh, this does probably rise to the level of, I mean, there's there's a certain amount of outrage that this will provoke amongst the public, and it, and, it, and like I said earlier, I think it it really inhibits them from trying to stop Walls's agenda. Hmm. In fact, at least on the, on the pandemic, and in fact on on the during that special session, uh, the one day special session, what what they what they have it every thirty days, uh, the governor has called them into special session to give them an opportunity, even though he doesn't really have to, but he gives them the opportunity to vote to overturn his the emergency powers that he's claimed to deal with the pandemic. And on that day, that special session, they did not take that vote, unlike five previous times. And the reason, you know, at the time we thought, well, this is an interesting reversal. that They, they seem to be acknowledging the seriousness of the pandemic. Well, they were, but they were also, they knew they could not possibly take a vote on this given that they had an outbreak in their own caucus. Yeah, when it's hitting um, that close to home for them, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I hope you're right. I mean, on... It would have looked so hypocritical. Yeah, I, I hope you're so, right on that. So, I just a cynic in me thinking, yeah. well, are they really going to face any consequences? But as you brought up, at least it sounds like they're at least kind of realizing that they've really screwed this whole thing up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is, I mean, are we going to, are we gonna remember this in March or May, April when we we mm-hmm. have a vaccine? I don't know, but you know, I think this is—it's been a very, very bad week for Paul Gazalker. Speaking with Patrick Kulikan, he is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. MinnesotaReformer.com is the website. Uh, Final story to talk about is a major development in the state Senate where we have two, I guess we we might call them former DFL state senators at this point, Tom Bach and David Tomasoni, who both represent districts on the Iron Range in northeastern Minnesota. They announced that they are going to be leaving the DFL caucus to form their own independent caucus. Essentially, that will take the Senate from having a 34-33 Republican majority now to a 34-31 Republican majority with, of course, two independents. Bach and Tomasoni said that basically they were tired of the 
political polarization from both sides of the political aisle, and that's why they were becoming independents. But as you were reporting and many others are saying here, Patrick, well, politically it sounds like they have something possibly worked out with Majority Leader Paul Gazelka because it does appear as if both Tomasoni and Bach are going to be able to chair a couple of committees, even though they're not technically part of the Republican Party. So what do you think? Did they have something probably worked out ahead of time with Gazelka when they became independents? What are your thoughts on that? Right. I mean, I said that uh, Gazelka had a bad week. He did have a good, uh, I guess, a, a good result here. Um, and there's no question that uh, they were, uh, this is a, a deal and, um, you know, the idea that they are leaving the, the DFL caucus because they're tired of the partisanship is, I don't believe that. I, I, these guys are creatures of the Capitol yeah. for a long, long time. And, um, the, the idea of, of having a gavel versus not having a gavel was, was a, was a no-brainer. Um, the question is, you know, what are the committees going to be? And, and who on the Republican side is going to lose a gavel, um, I guess they did have uh, maybe some retirements, but um, but yeah, an interesting development. Um, they uh, these two guys have, are really from a, a much uh, older school um, DFL, um, you know, more traditional labor. Uh, they are uh, very much from from the extraction school of natural resources. Um, they favor the copper nickel, copper nickel mining projects up there, as well as the the, the Enbridge oil pipeline, uh, because of good construction jobs. Um, and uh, they are out of step, really, with the current DFL caucus uh, on those issues, um, and and on some cultural issues, I guess you could call on. Mm-hmm. So it's. Uh, it's, it should be somewhat concerning to the DFL because, you know, that's your legacy base that you're losing there, um, white non-college guys. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, these guys are, uh, as I said, this is, this is not a principled uh, issue. Um, they're trying to get the best deal they could get, and, and this is the best deal they could get. If the if the election results had been different, this would could very well have gone differently. I wonder what the reaction is going to be among some of the other Republican senators. As uh, I think you were kind of speculating in the piece you wrote in the Minnesota Reformer today, at least in the newsletter version of the Minnesota Reformer, that perhaps Bach, who has always been interested in the tax committee, maybe he could be the chair of that committee and replace Republican Roger Chamberlain, who, as you point out, is the admirer of neo-fascist writer, bronze-aged pervert. Yeah, that name is correct, the bronze-aged pervert on Twitter. That's at least their pseudonym. And Roger Chamberlain, a big admirer of him. So Bach could potentially replace him on the tax committee. And of course, it sounds like Tomasoni also is going to get a committee chairmanship as well. So yeah, I wonder what the reaction will be from some of the other Republicans who might lose their committee chairmanships if they're going to be happy about this situation. But uh, well, it sounds like Gazelka has promised them that. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I, I mostly just wanted to bring up Roger Chamberlain because I wanted to uh, refer to his uh, his admiration yeah. for for the neo-fascist writer Bronze Age Pervert. But um, I I think that I'd heard 
from another source this morning that Bach may be in line for for the bonding committee. So that would be where we there they call it capital projects. It's it's basically the the all the, the big infrastructure projects. Uh, that'd be a, another natural fit for him, perfect for him because it's just a lot of deal making that goes on, um, and it's construction jobs, and that's his that's his bread and butter. He came from the the uh, carpenters union, um, and David Sengem, um, maybe in his last term, he's the he's the current chair of that committee. He may not feel like it's just a lot of work because he's going around the state looking at projects, and then you got to putting together that deal is. Very complicated because it requires a super majority. So Bach might be a good fit for bonding. Um, and then Thomasoni, in the past, has, has uh, the committee name has been different, but Energy and Commerce or Energy, um, Energy. I think it was Energy Ag and Housing at one point. Uh, so that's kind of in, in his wheelhouse. So yeah, but I, it's hard to imagine that some Republican here isn't gonna. Um, isn't going to feel a little bit uh, downgraded by this, although I presume that uh, DeZelta cleared this with his caucus, hmm. and uh, they're happy to have two extra votes rather than having to be by the skin of their teeth there by 34, 33. Yeah, and that's probably uh, ultimately right. And, and going back to the uh, thing you said about Roger Chamberlain, uh, yeah, that can't be pointed out enough, that the current chair of the tax <laughs> committee in the state Senate is an admirer of a neo-fascist author. Yikes, that is, uh, yeah. that is terrifying to think about. Hey, that's Patrick Kulikan. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Website is minnesotareformer.com. As always, Patrick, enjoy the Wednesday visits, and we'll uh, chat again next week. Always a pleasure. See ya. All right, thanks, Patrick. We'll take a break and come on back. We'll talk more about these executive orders that are going to be issued by Governor Tim Walls. Also talk a little bit more about Bach and Tomasoni leaving the DFL. That's all ahead next here on FYI Politics. voice of Minnesota, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. So as I look at Ballotpedia and the results of some of the past re-election campaigns from Tom Bach, I think he pretty much sees that he could be going the way of Colin Peterson in a future election cycle. If you look back to his re-election campaigns going back to like 2012, he was winning by upwards of 25 percentage points. How much did he win by in 2020? Only 10 percentage points. So I think this is a case where Bach sees the writing on the wall and knows that his time is probably going to be limited in the state Senate. So he might as well try to get as much influence as possible. And he's sitting there thinking, well, hey, if Paul Gazelka is going to promise me a committee chairmanship, might as well go ahead and take that. Now, of course, I know a lot of people are going to be sitting there thinking, well, look at the DFL struggling on the iron range again. Well, in the short term, I think that's absolutely true. I think overall, the DFL is going to need a new type of candidate to run in those type of districts that are now represented by David Tomasoni and Tom Bach. 
Bach and Tomasoni kind of represent a portion of the DFL party that just might not overall exist anymore. And even looking at the reaction from uh, DFL minority leader Susan Ken, she didn't exactly seem heartbroken over the fact that they are going to be losing Bach and Tomasoni. She said she wishes them well, but the DFL can only extend so far when it comes to, I'm very much paraphrasing here, when it comes to extending the big party part of our uh, or the big tent part of our party. That was uh, paraphrasing very much what she was saying, but it wasn't necessarily like they were uh, devastated by the fact that Bach and Tomasoni are going to be leaving the caucus. And think about it this way, too. Those, at least in the short term, might be the only two Democrats that could possibly win in those districts. Very well, they are definitely getting up there in years, Bach and Tomasoni, not the youngest of state legislatures, and it's very likely that as soon as they retire, those districts very well could go Republican unless you run a different type of DFLer. But certainly some drama playing out among the Iron Range DFLers, and we'll be chatting more about this on Friday's show as I'll be talking with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown, our expert on northern Minnesota politics. Patrick, I know you lived kind of in that area for a number of years. What are you making of this now that Bach and Tomasoni have pretty much pulled off the Band-Aid and decided, eh, we're going to be leaving the DFL now. Well, my thought on it is there's kind of a fracture. It's not a cleave. It's more of a fracture between Duluth and some of the uh, range cities and some of the other more industrially dependent towns along Lake Superior that I think Duluth has kind of shifted a little more toward tourism and environmental type activities where they're not as much interested in the iron ore that once flowed out of the ports of the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously the iron range is still very much, whether it's right or wrong, that's kind of what it looks at this point. Many of them say, that's the, this is how we want to live. We want to live by mining. And I think that's kind of where things are trending in that part of the state. Yeah, and mining is not a long-term solution whatsoever, and you also need to keep in mind that on the Iron Range and in northeastern Minnesota, tourism is another big part of your industry. And if you have any sort of mining accidents, guess what? You lose that tourism industry as well. So Baca and Tomasoni are no longer going to be caucusing with the DFL. They are now going to be independents, apparently promised a couple chairmanships of committees. So follow along with that story. And like I said, we'll talk much more about this with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown coming up on Friday's show. Uh, before I head to break again, do want to talk about these new executive orders that are set to be issued by Governor Tim Walls tonight. He is going to be giving a primetime press conference at 6 o'clock where he'll be going through the orders that he'll be issuing and the justifications for them. They'll also have media availability at 6.45. Now, in case you missed it, here is what is going to happen tonight. Restaurants, breweries, bowling alleys, movie theaters, and bars are going to be only open for takeout only. You can no longer dine in person at those places. Gyms are set to close. Organized indoor youth sports are going to pause beginning on Saturday. Outdoor sports and recreation not going to be impacted, so those sports will continue. Retail stores, salons, dental offices, and other healthcare businesses are not subject to the new restrictions. Also not affected by the new restrictions are hair salons and barbers and other personal care, elective surgeries, and uh, 
retail also uh, look like they're not going to be as impacted uh, by these executive orders issued by Governor Walls. At least looking at retail, I'm kind of getting some conflicting information as to what's going to happen with that. They might have some restrictions in place, although I've read another media report saying that retail won't be affected, so we'll have to wait until that news conference coming up at 645. Talking about that sports angle, though, uh, they were reporting that there have been a number of outbreaks, at least that are related to youth sports, that have been taking place over the past few months. And I've certainly seen this firsthand, as have you, Patrick. Like I've brought up a few times on my show, I get contracted to stream high school sports every once in a while. I ended up covering a couple of high schools this year that contracted me to stream their games. And on Tuesday, I was supposed to stream two high school football games, keyword being supposed to. They were both canceled because one of the teams in each of those games had an outbreak of COVID-19. In fact, if you look at all of the state high school football playoff brackets this year, seems like at least half the games, I'm probably exaggerating, but there were a large number of games last night that were canceled because... One of the teams had major COVID-19 outbreaks, so I'm certainly seeing it firsthand happen, as are you, Patrick. And I wonder when it comes to high school sports, as I've been thinking about how these outbreaks might be occurring. Patrick, chime in on this too, but I don't think these are necessarily occurring when games are being played. I think the bigger culprit are when teams are practicing or holding their team meetings or running drills or going into their changing areas or locker rooms. When you're playing games, you're generally not interacting or talking with someone for minutes on end. But I'm thinking about how, like, a coach might run a practice or when you have your players that are getting dressed for the game and you might have closer contact. That's where I'm guessing you're probably having more of the spread of the infectious disease, not the games themselves. And I don't want to blame the coaches or players. I mean, there's really no way as a coach you can run a distance practice. You kind of have to talk with the kids that you're coaching. So... When we talk about this idea of having outbreaks among sports teams, they're probably not happening at games. They're more likely to be happening at practices, which nonetheless is still a reason to probably at least temporarily put a pause on sports since you obviously need teams to practice before they can play. But I think that'll get lost in kind of the discussion on what's happening with sports is that it's not happening at the games per se. It's very likely at practices and team meetings and so on. What are your thoughts on that? I was also thinking of a bus ride where you're right. putting 40, 50 kids, well, not just kids, but 50 people in close quarters. And, you know, of course, if you're familiar with a school bus, those windows don't open very well. So I think it could be happening on the bus. You know, I've seen it, too, where after a game, you see a lot of people hanging around outside, just standing, mm-hmm. waiting to hang out, waiting with or hanging out, waiting for the players to come out after the game. And so you've got a bunch of people all standing together, uh, even if they're outside, they're all close together. So I think there are quite a few things that I think people don't really think about that this could be happening. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, we'll take our break in another minute here, Patrick, but... Yeah, when you're going to hear people saying, well, I don't see any COVID outbreaks happening at these different games that are being played. Yeah, you need to look more into it as you were talking about with like gatherings that take place before and after games or even those bus rides or transportation that you might have players taking to different games. Those are probably the bigger culprits than actually going out on the field and, uh, well, hosting the event or playing the events themselves. It's probably uh, more of the parts you can't see where you're having some of these outbreaks occur. 
All right, coming up on the other side of the break, we are going to be talking about what's happening with some Hennepin County workers as they could be facing some layoffs and some uh, industries that could be very negatively impacted. We'll talk about what's happening with some of these Hennepin County workers and their union coming up next here on FYI Politics. And we're back on AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. We're joined now by Allie Furman. She is the president of Asks Me Local 2822, a union that represents several workers that are part of Hennepin County. And they recently held an event in downtown Minneapolis as they have a new campaign to fight layoffs at Hennepin County libraries and to require their employers to notify staff and the public when they have positive COVID tests at the libraries. Gathering was scheduled one day before Hennepin County Board of Commissioners were stated to potentially authorize layoffs, mandatory furloughs, and other cuts to Hennepin County worker benefits. The measures were ultimately delayed, but could come up in the next few weeks or so. So, Happy to welcome Allie back to the show to talk about what's happening with some of these Hennepin County workers. Hey, Allie, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into some of the issues, uh, just for people aren't familiar, can you tell us about uh, who is in your union? Again, Asks Me Local 2822 and what kind of workers you guys represent and where people might see them around the county when they're working? Yeah, so we have 1,300 support staff. Um, we represent workers in the service centers or the DMVs, um, libraries, support staff in probation, um, uh, health and human services. So if you go to apply for benefits to Hennepin County, you see our workers do intake. Um, anywhere there's support staff at the county, we've got um, Ask Me 2822 workers. And then um, social workers, librarians, probation officers, they're also Ask Me workers as well. Gotcha. Okay, so now we have a little bit of an idea of who works in your union, and certainly it is a wide variety of workers that, yeah, people, I think, uh, would definitely be impacted by if there were any uh, any job cuts that could potentially happen since these are, yeah, some of the workers you might see behind the scenes that really kind of get the wheels turning around the city. So i got to ask this question, though, with these proposed layoffs, because people might be sitting there thinking, well, we're in tough economic times. Everyone has to make sacrifices. But you say these cuts could have a really negative impact on the community if they were to go through by Hennepin County. Can you talk about some of these negative impacts that might happen should these layoffs go through? Yeah, so our call is that if there have to be cuts, it should, it should come to management, to people who aren't doing direct service to people. Um what we do is provide direct services. So when you cut staff, that always means cuts to services. Um, in the library in particular, they are um, looking at cutting 100 positions from the budget from last year. So 66 positions have already been eliminated um, through attrition or vacancies, um, and they're looking at um, another 35 um, positions to cut for next year. Um, so that means not getting your books on time. That means not... Um, getting the resources you need from librarians. Um, libraries are one of the, the only services that are available to everyone and really provide that access to knowledge and information that people need um, 
to survive. Uh, so when you cut staff, that means we're not going to have people to answer questions and people aren't going to get their materials in a timely manner. Um, so yeah, yeah, you cut staff and that means the community is going to suffer in a time when they need us more than ever. And especially that could impact a lot of lower income people who often use the library as their only service to get internet or for other information. And I know people might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't ever go to the library. I just work from home now with the COVID era. But this could really have a major impact on a lot of low-income people who live in Minneapolis and other parts of Hennepin County. Right, exactly. And that's generally who suffers during um, economic crises or pandemics or large-scale social upheaval. And that's why we're saying that's unacceptable, um, that we can't shortchange the people who need us the most. And um, also, you know, Support staff are lower-wage workers, and putting more people on the the unemployment doesn't serve our economy either. Um, People want to work, and they want to serve the community, and that's what we should be doing. And if if those cuts have to be made, then um, they need to look at cutting back um, some of the managerial blow. So ultimately, the Hennepin County Board decided not to go through with any of these layoffs recently, but you said they still could revisit this topic in the coming weeks. So what should we be watching for in the uh, coming weeks and months in terms of uh, possibly having some of these layoffs actually go through? Or what are you expecting to happen? So, so the budget will be approved, whatever the budget is for 2021, will be approved December 15th. So the county commissioners um, convened twice um, to vote on these kind of measures in November. That's um, the 3rd and the 17th. So that's when we're expecting them to return with some kind of uh, board approval request. Um, so David Huff, the county administrator, brings those before the commissioners, and then um, they will likely vote at it either next Tuesday or the 17th of November. But then ultimately the decision that the budget is not approved until um, December 15th. Speaking with Allie Furman, she is the president of Ask Me Local 2822, which is a union that represents several workers in Hennepin County, including many of the librarians that work in Hennepin County. Now, just besides the layoffs, you guys have also talked about a number of issues that you would like to see the county address, including safety, which of course is definitely big with the COVID-19 pandemic. And in the press release you recently put out, you talked about how the county currently does not have a policy of mandatory notifications of positive COVID cases and no mandatory testing and temperature checks and verbal screenings at the door. So talk a little bit about what the current policy is for the county. And it sounds like it's also a little bit different than what some other private companies are doing around around the area. Yeah, so we have workers here who have children or, or family members who work at places like Target, and they are all notified of positive cases. Um, when we released the press release, the county um, was steadfast in its position that it would not be notifying us of positive cases unless we met the, the definition of exposure. Um, that changed. We got notified verbally last Wednesday. The presidents of AFSCME unions were notified that cha- the policy was going to change. Um, we are waiting to see um, an announcement of that new policy. But we also want um, mandatory testing. Um, so if we have a positive case in the workplace, we want everyone tested. And then we want everyone tested every week. Um, Minnesota and the Midwest is the worst in the, in the country right now in terms of cases. And we need to be able to continue to provide our essential services um, and not expose the public um, to the virus so or each other. So 
And then we also want to do verbal and temperature screenings at the door. This is already being done um, at a lot of kind of public facilities like um, schools and um, clinics. So, you know, people have come into our, our buildings visibly ill, and it's um, we need to have a more robust system for keeping uh, patrons and staff safe. So, yeah, we're asking for mandatory testing and then also those verbal and temperature screenings for, for the public and staff when it comes to the building. Now, of course, a lot of the workers in the union you represent are women, and you, you put through a really shocking statistic in your press release, which said since the COVID-19 pandemic took place, recent government stats show that 617,000 women have left the workforce in September alone, compared to only 78,000 men. Certainly quite the disparity. And I think a big issue that has to do with why that's happening is, well, the lack of child care for a lot of workers, since you have kids that are doing remote learning, obviously, and are not in school. So want to ask you what the county is currently doing now to help with child care and what you would like to see. Um, so the only thing currently they're doing is um, uh, there's federal child care leave that's provided by the federal government under the CARES Act, which provides um, parents with kids who are doing distance learning two-thirds of their regular pay. Um, some of our workers are using this uh, sporadically but really cannot afford to use it and lose that one-third of their pay. So we're asking the employer to cover that additional one-third. Um, some of our workers, the, the, this federal leave ends December 31st. So we want them to extend it into 2021. And then we also want um, county-sponsored uh, daycare centers for, for workers who um, don't have the option of remote work. So, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge gender issue um, and is really, I mean, we talk to women every day who wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and work basically till 9 because they're trying to do the, the uh, take care of their children and work at the same time. And um, they're all saying they're going to quit. And we're going to, you know, we really, we really need to support our mothers in particular around um, being able to continue to work. It's just, this is, the pandemic is, is exacerbating um, existing inequalities and, it's really hitting working mothers hard and Hennepin County can use CARES dollars. They've already spent 44 million or something like $44 million or more um, of care dollars on small business loans. Um, and we need to have that same kind of support for, for our, our parents and, and particularly working mothers. And I think what's lost in the discussion when we talk about people who are being laid off, unfortunately, and especially with government workers, is that keep in mind when they're getting paid, that money is going right back into the local economy and the local community. And if you don't have them working anymore, if they're having to stay home to provide child care, that's less money that's going to be reinvested back in our local economy which, of course, just kind of exacerbates the exact situation. So I think that's important to point out when we're talking about these layoffs and potentially more women leaving the workforce, especially part of your union, that this has massive ramifications economically when this happens. Right. That's a really good point. And then um, any attack on public sector unions, and I think about this also with the postal workers, is an attack on on black and brown workers, too. That's, uh, public sector jobs have much... Um, are, are some of the best paying jobs that um, uh, a lot of people of color have, 
have gotten and, and attacks on those jobs are really attacks on workers of color um, and particularly women of color. Um, so anytime there's cuts to public sector jobs, that's really an attack on um, on on people of color and, and women in particular as well because they make more in the, pub, uh, the, the public sector than in the private sector. So over the past few weeks and months, as you guys have been asking for some changes to be made by Hennepin County, there unfortunately have been some accusations that workers have been facing retaliation for speaking out. So can you talk about what sorts of retaliation uh, some of your workers have been facing for talking about, well, improvements they would like to see from their work conditions? Yeah, so it started at um, North Point Health and Wellness. We had a group of call center workers who wanted to work from home. And they'd had a number of cases in their office, a very small office. Um, and our chief steward, Regina Cottrell, was investigated as a result of her advocacy. Um, we fought that back. They never disciplined her. Um, then we had a campaign with our support staff in probation, um, adult probation. And they um, investigated or uh, issued kind of coaching letters to three of the eight um, individuals who spoke before county commissioners during open forum. So um, one of those individuals is Sue Olson. She's our uh, union steward for that department. Um, she was issued a coaching, essentially um, attacking her union activity. Um, so we're calling for the removal of that uh, letter from her file. And then we're also calling for no discipline against Shaquilla Redding, who was a, a pregnant mother of two, who was investigated. And then Jackie Long, who's also a mother, um, and being uh, was recently investigated this week. Wow! Yeah, that is. So, so yeah, people have a right to speak about safety issues, and they, they we need. Uh, there cannot, there absolutely cannot tolerate retaliation for for that. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, that just that retaliation leads to people not speaking out, which obviously leads to worse working conditions. So yeah, hopefully some changes are made in in that aspect because that would be very concerning if you speak out to your employer and oh yeah, you're going to face retaliation and discipline for speaking out. That's a uh, very toxic work environment. Right, exactly. So final question for you, Allie, uh, what can people do if they want to follow along with what's happening and if they'd like to help out with uh, with what's happening with your union right now to fight back against some of these layoffs? Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, we are doing a call in the county commissioners right now. Um, so we really encourage people to go to hennepincounty.org um, and look up your county commissioner if you don't know who they are. Um, and call them and tell them no layoffs of staff, um, safety in the workplace, um, support working parents, and end retaliation. Um, so, you know, anyone who uses county services, um, from health and human services to libraries um, to the DMVs. We are here to support you, and we're asking you to um, uh, call your elected official and support us um, so that we can continue providing the services that uh, we all need. And by the way, one final important point to point out, of course, is that we have Election Day coming up on Tuesday, and there are well, a number of uh, places on the ballot where you can vote for Hennepin County commissioners. So that could certainly be another way if, if people would like to change the makeup of who is on the Hennepin County Board of Commissioners with what's happening. So I'm sure, yeah, you're keenly aware of that as well, that perhaps if we have a makeup change of who's on the board, well, maybe we could have some uh, have uh, some different perspectives brought to the board and maybe some changes made. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. The most conservative elements on the board are leaving, um, and hopefully that will push um, some of the other commissioners to take more of a stand. That's Allie Furman. She is the president of Ask Me Local 2822, which represents a number of workers in Hennepin County, including uh, some of the librarians you might interact with if you go to uh, any of those Hennepin County libraries. Allie, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, before I go, I want to tell you about two interviews that I'll be airing on Friday that I'm really excited about. One is with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown. He's our expert on northern Minnesota politics, and we'll continue talking more about the DFL on the Iron Range and what it's going to mean to have Tom Bach and David Tomasoni leave the DFL to become independents. Also ahead, we'll be speaking with John Eligo of the New York Times, as he recently wrote a piece talking about the city of Chaska and Carver County and how that section of the Southwest Metro took a big turn towards Democrats in 2020. And then for tomorrow, I'll be live for the entire hour as I'll be joined by Todd Mickelson, who is a local Minnesota political expert, as he can share some insight as to why the DFL struggled down ballot. So looking forward to both the Thursday and Friday shows. Stay tuned. we got Matt McNeil coming up next.